from WIS Politics in Madison. You're listening to Capital Chats. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a WIS Politics Capital Chats podcast brought to you by Spectrum. I'm Kate Morton, a reporter with WISPolitics.com, here with my colleague Adam to talk about an interview he did with U.S. Rep. Mike Gallagher. So, Adam, what did you guys talk about? Hi, Kate. Yeah, so I was able to catch up with U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher, a Republican of Alloway, the Green Bay area. We talked a lot about what his goals are for his uh, select committee on the Chinese Communist Party. He's going to be the chair of that committee. Um, So I kind of asked him about how that's going to work and everything. And I also asked for uh, some of his thoughts on the war in Ukraine, considering he's a former U.S. Marine and he's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. So welcome to the show, Congressman Gallagher. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, So... To start off with, what are your top priorities in the 118th Congress? Well, I was just named chairman of the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. And so that's um, probably taking up most of my energy right now because we're creating the committee out of nothing right now. And so getting the members ready to go, building a staff and getting the Democrats to participate is my main effort right now. And it's, it's kind of bound up in what has been one of my primary focuses for the last six years in Congress, which is how do we restore deterrence? How do we position ourselves to win this new Cold War with the Chinese Communist Party? How to make sure that we're in the strongest position in the early stages of this competition, which I view to be existential and I view to be the most important issue of our time. And it transcends foreign policy and domestic issues. So that's a priority uh, for me. And I know maybe the second thing that sounds silly One thing I've learned uh, in the last six years is that some of the most important work you do as a member of Congress is not actually what happens here on Capitol Hill or, you know, a bill that becomes a law. It's just the meat and potatoes, bread and butter, constituent casework that we do in Northeast Wisconsin. And that may sound silly, but it's actually very important. So if someone comes to the office saying, hey, I'm not I'm a veteran, I'm not getting the VA benefits that I need or I'm having a trouble. I'm having trouble getting Social Security or I. I have a visa issue. I have a team of people in my office that works together to help people in Northeast Wisconsin. And that's so making sure that we have world-class constituent services, that we're doing the best job possible in terms of serving the people in Northeast Wisconsin is, is always a priority for me. All right. Got it. So the debt ceiling vote has been uh, probably the most contentious issue as of late. And uh, we we heard U.S. Representative Ron, or U.S. Senator Ron Johnson uh, earlier this week say that any kind of a debt ceiling vote uh, from the House would have to come with a promise to cut spending or, you know, introduce fiscal controls in the future. Um, What do you think of that? Are there any spending cuts you can see like right off the bat or anything like that? Well, all we're asking for in the House right now is for President Biden to get in a room with Speaker McCarthy and start negotiating. We haven't even put out a, a series of demands. We're just asking that the president entertain a discussion with the Speaker of the House. And thus far, the president has stonewalled the Speaker of the House, which is crazy to me. I mean, you have to have, it's not like we're going to agree on everything, but we have divided government right now. The American people expressed their will in the last election, and they at least gave control of one chamber of Congress to Republicans. And so we're just asking for the president to have a conversation, an adult conversation without the cameras right now. So there's no pre there's no there's no condition that I or any other Republican is placing on that right now. Now, I agree with the thrust of what Senator Johnson's saying. I think there has to be a if we're going to increase the debt ceiling, let's pair it with some sensible 
long-term, you know, a move to restore fiscal sanity. But right now it's too early to say what that thing is. There's plenty of ideas floating around. But before any of that, before that second phase of the discussion happens, the president needs to be willing to engage with us and not just say, you know, my way or the highway. That's not leadership. So is it is it fair to say you broadly agree with what Johnson is saying to kind of promise like future spending cuts? I think, well, I think there's a, a lot we could do that I think could be bipartisan, right? So for example, the fact that the we haven't ended the pandemic emergency makes no sense to me. And that's actually a mechanism the executive branch is using to spend way more money than traditionally they're allowed to do it through executive fiat. So that ending that is, I think, a no brainer that, you know, a common sense Wisconsinite, be they Democrat or Republican could get behind. Now, that being said, if you end the pandemic emergency, you're ending Title 42. So you need to enhance border security at the same time because we have a complete absolute disaster at the southern border right now. The other thing that's sensible to me, you know, really the issue driving our debt is not you know, any of our discretionary programs uh, that we've, we authorize and appropriate every year. It's the mandatory programs. No one wants to talk about mandatory programs. So I don't think someone should come into the discussion saying we need to do X, Y, Z on Social Security. But there are bills out there that could create a bipartisan process for at least looking at the long-term impact of our mandatory programs. Uh, there's something called the Trust Act, which is bipartisan in the Senate. I think 70 uh, uh, senators voted for it in the last Congress, I have that bill in the House, so hopefully that will be part of the discussion. But I'm not, I'm not coming into this saying you must pass my bill. I just want the president to start talking with us. All right, got it. Um, I kind of want to stick with that the the Social Security and uh, Medicare issue because Ron Johnson has been hit quite a bit on that for arguing that they should be turned from mandatory spending into discretionary spending. Is there a way to kind of save Social Security and Medicare? Uh, without putting those two um, programs up for votes uh, like every year? There is. Social Security is admittedly easier than than Medicare. But one thing you could do that would be sort of a generational fix. And I think anyone coming in this discussion has to be clear about we're not talking about changing anything for anybody at or near retirement at all. But basically our generation, I don't, I'm not going to hesitate to guess how old you are, but you look younger than me. Uh, so I'm saying like millennials and I'm an old millennial and below, we're scheduled to get more generous benefits than our parents will get. So and in a real basis, right, if you adjust for inflation, we're going to get a more generous compensation package like that. That doesn't need to happen. Just give us the same square deal that our parents and our grandparents get. And you start to fix a lot of the problems. So there's all sorts of sensible things you could do like that. You know, on the Medicare side, um, it's more complex. Healthcare is maddeningly complex, but you can have auto enrollment and Medicare Advantage, for example, and allow people the choice to opt in or out of it. Um, you could find efficiencies here or there. But there I see less of a silver bullet solution and more of a kind of like sensible healthcare reform efforts over time that add up, that uh, reduce costs while not compromising um, services that patients need as well as coverage. But that's a, that's a harder thing to do in one piece of legislation. Sure. Yeah. No, Medicare is, is definitely a complex issue. And the biggest so driver of costs is just that we're getting less healthy. Uh, obesity is on the rise. And that has less to do in many cases with the type of health insurance you have and more lifestyle choices. But how do you legislate a healthier, healthier lifestyle? One thing we might want to think about is we should stop subsidizing things uh, like sugar that uh, kill us uh, and that are bad for us. At least let's not like plow taxpayer dollars into things that don't improve your health. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
Interesting. So uh, I want to go back to that that select committee on the Chinese Communist Party. Um, that's a that's a big move for you this year. So what are your like what are your top priorities for that committee? And I've also heard uh, some people voice concerns that maybe this committee could, uh, you know, break into a little bit of borderline racism. Are you going to try to, how are you going to try to avoid that? And what are the priorities for this committee? I'll answer that one uh, first, and I'll answer your your, your previous question. Uh, I think those concerns are misplaced. I mean, you can look at my record the last six years. I don't think any, any Democrat could accuse me of inflaming anti-Asian hatred. My rhetoric is, is, rarely reckless, though I often make mistakes. Um, I have a bipartisan track record. And so, I, listen, I guess the proof will be in the pudding, but the most obvious way where we can blunt that criticism is to constantly draw a distinction between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. And the Chinese Communist Party is the primary oppressor of the Chinese people. The Chinese diaspora is often the primary victim of CCP aggression and defending that diaspora, defending Asian Americans from any transnational repression of coercion regime is going to be one of our core functions on the Select Committee on China, which leads to your, your first question. Um, my pro I think the, the most urgent priority for our overall grand strategy vis-a-vis -vis China is to um, make the right investments when it comes to hard power in the Indo-Pacific. We need to arm Taiwan to the teeth before it's too late. That gives us our best chance of preventing war. That's the lesson of Ukraine, where we saw deterrence fail because we we pulled hard power from Eastern Europe and we relied solely on soft power. Let us not repeat that same mistake in Ukraine. Uh, that to me is the most urgent uh, aspect of our policy and something that we could really make a difference on in the next two years. The second dimension of this competition is what I call economic statecraft. So there we need to do a better job of ensuring that U.S., dollars are not funding genocide in China, that U.S. dollars are not funding China's military uh, modernization, that we are not funding our own destruction. So putting in place sensible controls on U.S. capital flowing outbound to China, I think is something we can get done in this Congress. And then when it comes to sort of the third dimension of competition, what I would call ideological competition or ideological warfare, we need to understand something called united front work. United front work is something Xi Jinping, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, is, has called his magic weapon. It's kind of a combination of espionage and influence operations. It's the way that corrupt a lot of our domestic institutions. We need to understand it in order to develop policies and legislation in order to counter United Front work. And there, I would say all of our universities, including the University of Wisconsin system, need to do a better job of being on the lookout for Chinese influence. A lot of these universities are desperate for Chinese cash, and that can corrupt uh, free speech on universities. So we want to make sure that we're not messing up what used to be like the crown jewel of Western civilization, which was, you know, the university system, um, you know, in, in the UK and then ultimately in America. Uh, and so those are some, a few thoughts on what we can do. All right. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned Ukraine in that response. I want to touch on Ukraine. Recently, the U.S. Uh, decided to give 31 M1 Abrams main battle tanks to Ukraine. Uh, you are a former U.S. Marine intelligence officer intelligence officer. And um, I noticed that the U.S. Marine Corps recently decided to disband or give away all of its uh, M1 Abrams tanks to uh, the Army, various others. And I know that's part of like a, a broader plan to kind of modernize the Marine Corps. And, you know, they, they still plan to use tanks in other fields in other ways, just not their own. 
Uh, but what do you think about that decision to give those tanks to Ukraine? I think it's the right decision. Uh, the Ukrainians have been asking for them for a while. Uh, and we've kind of seen this pattern play out with the administration where they resist sending certain weapon systems. They drag their feet, and we put all this pressure on them in Congress to do it. And ultimately, they do it, but it's like a day late and a dollar short. And they always say, well, we have we can't be too provocative. We can't provoke Putin. It's like we're deterring ourselves. I think weakness is provocative and strength is the only way that we can end this war in Ukraine. So the other thing that's the thing that's missing in this latest package is something called the Army Tactical Missile System or ATACMS. Ukrainians need ATACMS. That's the bottom line. There's some other critical capabilities such as cluster munitions, something called the dual purpose improved conventional munitions, Gray Eagle drones that they need. But it's like we're, we're dragging the administration kicking and screaming in order to do some of this stuff. Now, admittedly, we are discovering a lot of uh, fragility in our own defense industrial base. So there's certain things that we just can't make enough of. We're running low on Javelin missiles and we have to keep our own stockpiles healthy. So we're going to have to learn a lesson about how do we replenish our stockpiles. And that's not only important for Ukraine, that's essential for Taiwan because you need to, you need to stockpile munitions before the shooting starts because Taiwan is not going to be as easy to resupply as Ukraine is, because Taiwan's an island. There's no, you can't sort of send supplies through neighboring countries. So we're going to have to build these weapon systems and put them in stockpiles before we get in, in a war or otherwise it's too late. Yeah, um, got it. So uh, you are also a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, that's definitely an important note to mention. Um, one other area of interest for U.S. military has been the South China Sea What's the most recent news going on there? What what can we see in the future this year? Well, the open question is whether Xi Jinping, you know, the tr multi-trillion dollar question is whether Xi Jinping is going to make a move on Taiwan. He repeatedly has said that reunification of Taiwan by force, if necessary, is a priority. I believe it's his legacy issue. I believe it's part of the reason he ran for and secured a third term as general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, now... And I think the odds of a confrontation over Taiwan are going up dramatically and that we're in the window of maximum danger and that 2024 is particularly a dangerous year for reasons I can explain if you're interested. Um, but I'm, I'm very concerned that we're not prepared for that right now and that Xi Jinping, particularly as he experiences more economic headwinds and sees the big thundercloud on the horizon, which is the demographic problem they have in China, in the 2030s are going to be dealing with more retirees than any society in human history. That might actually make him more aggressive this decade than not. And if we don't urgently surge hard power west of the international dateline, I think our odds of deterring a conflict get much lower. So that's what concerns me right now. There are things we can do to solve that problem, but there the administration just hasn't been moving fast enough. Well, Adam, thanks for sharing that interview. And if our listeners want to know more about our representatives in Washington, D.C., they can check out our D.C. wrap, which comes out on about a weekly basis on wispolitics.com. But for now, I'm Adam Kelnoffer. I'm Kate Morton. Thanks for tuning in to Capital Chats, brought to you by Spectrum.